True Crime Twins is presented by Crawl Space Media and powered by Pulse Cellular. America's fastest growing national wireless carrier. They have you covered with nationwide unlimited talk, text, and data plans in all 50 states and the Caribbean regions of the U.S., including Puerto Rico, Vieques, Culebra, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. It's 50 gigs per line, hotspot and Wi-Fi calling included. There are no contracts, no credit checks, and no average fees. The plans include talk, text, and 5 gigs of LTE data when traveling to Mexico or Canada. And all of that with the best and latest phones. Do you already have a phone that works for you, but your plan sucks? Switching to Pulse is now simple and easy. Our offer to our listeners is single line and family plans available. And by using promo code CRAWLSPACE, you will receive 10% off of your monthly bill. Go to PulseCellular.com and use promo code CRAWLSPACE to get your 10% off today. Don't overpay on your cell phone, you guys. Keep in touch with True Crime Twins on social media. You can find us on Instagram at True Crime Twins Podcast, on Twitter at True Crime Twins, and you can also email us with any questions or comments at True Crime Twins Podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to rate and subscribe. Welcome back to True Crime Twins. I'm Chloe. I'm Melina. And we are bringing you another fascinating true crime case. This one is an unsolved murder. It's technically unsolved because someone was tried and convicted for this case, but the conviction was overturned and that overturned conviction was upheld by the Supreme Court and this man is now free. So technically speaking, this is an unsolved case. The case we're talking about is the 1975 murder a 15-year-old Martha Moxley, a resident of Greenwich, Connecticut. So this case kind of intrigues us because we've spent a lot of time in Greenwich growing up and we've heard a lot about this case. And plus, there's a Kennedy connection. There is. And that, I think, brought this case quite a lot of attention as it was being tried. The person that served, I think, what, 10 years in prison out of his 20-year sentence was a Kennedy cousin, and that's what all the headlines will say. The person convicted was named Michael Skakel. His father, Rushton Skakel, and Ethel Skakel Kennedy were siblings. And Ethel Skakel Kennedy, for those of you who don't know, was married to RFK Sr. So that made this whole thing a lot more high profile. Now, Michael Skakel was not tried for the case for a very long time. Now his cousin, his loyal cousin Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is saying that Michael Skakel was wrongfully tried and persecuted because they wanted to put a Kennedy in jail. You know what I think? What do you think, Chloe? I think the reason it took so long to put him in jail was because of his Kennedy connection. The Greenwich police will say themselves, Steve Carroll, who was a Greenwich police officer at the time, has since admitted that they were intimidated by the Skakel family and they did not approach the investigation properly because of it, putting it at a standstill for much too long, denying Martha Moxley the justice that she deserved. Let's get into the case. Yeah, how did these Skakels even know Martha Moxley? The Skakel family lived across the street from Martha. She lived on Walsh Lane in the Bellhaven neighborhood of Greenwich. Fancy. 
very fancy basically the fanciest neighborhood in the fanciest town in the fanciest state in the fanciest country that's all subjective but it was <laughs> it is a fancy place and it still is just mansion after mansion highly exclusive gated community the Bellhaven golf club is there so martha actually was from california she lived in greenwich for a short period of time martha had lived there for a year or two but she fit in and was able to get acclimated very quickly. She had a very outgoing personality. She was voted in the yearbook superlatives the most popular girl in school after only being there for one school year. She was a beautiful girl, blonde hair, stylish. Her mother said that she had a very girly figure. She was just very well liked and highly regarded and social. She liked to go out and be social with friends. She was in trouble with her mother at the time for missing her curfew. So what was going on on the night she was last alive? So it was October 30th, 1975. Kids celebrate the night before Halloween because it's known as Mischief Night. They go around the neighborhood, play harmless, for the most part, harmless pranks. Like egging people's houses or something. Shaving cream, stuff like that. So Martha was out and about in the Bellhaven neighborhood with friends. She was last seen at the Skakel house. It was right across the street. She had a flirtation with one of the Skakel brothers, Thomas Skakel, known as Tommy. He was 17 and they had a little flirtation. She also was rumored to have a flirtation with 15-year-old Michael who was a little bit less popular, had his own issues. Both brothers were known to be quite temperamental. Rowdy. Rowdy, to have substance abuse issues. They were both attending the private Brunswick school. Very wealthy and influential family. I don't think it would be disagreed with to say that they were quite spoiled. Yes, spoiled. And Tommy was kind of known, like you said, as the more popular one. And Michael was considered sort of the small, sad kid of the family who was really affected by his mother's death. Martha had a diary and she would describe her interactions with the Skakel brothers. And she had actually described an instance where Tommy tried to sort of feel up her leg and she pushed his hand away, but he kept putting it back. She had talked about another occasion where Michael was kind of causing a scene and yelling at people to the point where she and her friends felt uncomfortable and left. She described Michael as an asshole. In these accounts in her diary, the Skakel brothers were frequently intoxicated. So that's where she was last seen. What time was that at? Her last appearance? Yeah, when she was at the Skakel house with Tommy. So she was there for a little while, but she was last seen by the pool with Tommy Skakel around 9.30 p.m. She had gone to the Skakel house with two of her friends, and they actually felt very uncomfortable because she and Tommy started horsing around, sort of canoodling, canoodling, pushing each other, making out, falling together behind bushes, and they felt, quote, embarrassed, and they left. So how did this come to this horrific tragic beginning well martha was reported missing pretty quickly her mother had fallen asleep painting by her window and martha had missed her curfew which was i believe at 9 30 
her older brother had come home and Martha's mother had enlisted him to go out searching for Martha. She called the police. Nothing was really coming to fruition. The next morning, Dorothy Moxley, Martha's mother, was surrounded by friends, supporters, loved ones as they tried to figure out what might have happened to Martha because she was already in trouble for missing her curfew. People weren't immediately too concerned. Maybe she had stayed out too late and was afraid to face the consequences. Unfortunately, early that next afternoon, a young girl who was friends with Martha, who was walking across a shared property line in the backyard, was sort of, you know, looking for Martha, yelling out Martha's name, and she spotted something under a tree. What was that, Melina? It unfortunately was the dead body of Martha Moxley underneath the tree behind her own house. She was face down, covered in blood, and her pants were pulled down. The police that first responded thought that she had red hair because of the amount of blood that surrounded her head wound. They found pieces of a golf club, a Tony Penna six iron golf club. That was actually the murder weapon. Missing from the pieces of the golf club were it was the handle that was missing and they would later find out that the handle of that said Anne Skakel which was the name of Michael Skakel and Tommy Skakel's late mother so that golf club came from the Skakel home and that was used as the murder weapon she was repeatedly bludgeoned in the head she was first attacked sort of at the beginning of her driveway she was able to run for a short distance where the fatal attack occurred the killer dragged Martha across her lawn by her feet, placed her under the tree where he continued to beat her with the golf club until it broke, and then with the broken shaft of the golf club, stabbed her through the neck. At some point after placing her under the tree, the killer also pulled down Martha's pants and underwear, and that's how he left her. They would say that there was no sign of sexual assault in her autopsy, But we have to remember that this kind of wasn't the most sophisticated investigation. Greenwich, Connecticut doesn't really have a lot of murder cases. Let's call this a botched investigation, which is what it was. The crime scene was not secured with tape. Dogs were sniffing around, looking around there. People were walking all over crucial evidence. Evidence was lost. Her body was not treated like evidence. The surrounding area was not treated like evidence. And like we were talking about, Greenwich is a very small, widely considered to be a safe town. Sheltered. Sheltered. The police do not have a lot of experience with these investigations. My understanding of the extent of the examination of sexual assault was shining one of those blue UV lights in her genital region, which did not uncover any semen. I believe there was maybe also an intact hymen. However... That's very old school science. It's now widely understood that people can still have an intact hymen and still have had some sort of sexual intercourse. The hymen does not break every time. That's just not science. So are we saying that we think she was raped? I don't know for sure. Like we said, no evidence was uncovered that she was. I don't think a thorough enough investigation was done to rule it out. And even if it had been, I think it's difficult to rule it out. This was before the days of rape kits and 
I think it's possible that the person just pulled down her pants to humiliate her. Maybe they intended to rape her and they couldn't perform. Maybe they did rape her. We'll never know, unfortunately. However, based on statements made by the now-released Michael Skagel, I do believe that there was semen on her body based on his own words. We'll get to that, though. Yeah. Let's talk about who was first suspected of the murder. That would be Tommy Skakel, Melina. Tommy Skakel was the prime suspect. Like I said before, the Greenwich police were intimidated by the Skakel family. They didn't actually execute a formal search warrant. They let the father, Rushton Skakel, sort of walk them through the house in an informal search. But they started to sort of close in on Tommy anyway as a suspect. He was the last one seen with her. He lied about a paper that he was writing. He said that they parted ways after making out briefly and that he last saw her walking towards her house. He had to go upstairs and write a paper on Abraham Lincoln. No such paper was ever assigned. So that obviously raises some red flags right away. They find out that he had quite a bad day at school. I believe he was voted off the soccer team by his own peers that day, which is... Ouch. Yeah, that's quite a rejection. So who knows? Maybe he's canoodling with Martha. He gets rejected again and just loses it. The police also requested files from his school, disciplinary records, medical records, and that corroborated the rumors that Tommy had quite an uncontrollable temper. But Rushton, the Skakel father, kind of pulled out all the stops to protect his sons. So they kind of threw somebody under the bus that they had recently employed. That's correct, Melina. So first, Rushton Skakel was cooperative, but as soon as he started realizing the direction of the investigation, the Skakels took another strategy. That night was the first day of work of a man named Ken Littleton. He had worked at the Brunswick School, and Rushton Skakel had hired him to be a live-in tutor for his boys. <laughs> Must be nice. Yeah, nice nice gig. All of the kids, uh, I think, struggled with school. They were extremely wealthy. They had the resources to sort of just put someone up like that. So before Martha and her friends went over to the Skakel house, it was Ken's first night on the job. He took the Skakel boys and... There was one daughter, so he took the Skagel kids, the clan, to the Bellhaven Club for dinner, where all of the kids apparently just got loaded on alcohol and were wasted. Brought them back home. He's getting acquainted. I think he watched the French Connection on TV during the time of the murder. He says that while he's watching the French Connection, Tommy Skagel comes upstairs and has a brief conversation with him before leaving again. Ken Littleton had some issues after the murder. He had some stints shoplifting in Nantucket. He had some mental health issues where he ended up hospitalized. So this kind of didn't look good for him. And the defense strategy of the Skakels was to really put him at the forefront as a suspect. And I think he kind of lost his mind as a result. Yes, all of that negative attention, all of that uh, suspicion, I think it would do a lot of people and especially someone that's already psychologically vulnerable he was actually recently on a id discovery no show. way yeah you must have missed it <laughs> so and just telling his story about how he was you know they attempted really to frame him they even went as far as to have his own wife or ex-wife talk to him on the phone on a wiretap 
and tried to get him to confess, which didn't happen. That's kind of weird. I didn't know that. Yeah, they really pulled out all the stops, but that never really worked out. There was also a story presented by the Skakel family that two kids from New York were in Bellhaven that night just visiting, uh, two outsiders. This story came about from Tony Bryant, who lived in Bellhaven and is actually related to the basketball player Kobe Bryant. He says that his two friends visited and talked about wanting to get a girl that night caveman style, which he knew to mean beating her in a, same, in a similar way that Martha Moxley was beat. Tony Bryant did not come forward with this story to the police because he says that his mom told him to stay out of it because he's African-American and he was concerned about getting blamed. So in RFK's newest book, Framed, he presents those two men as the most likely suspects. Yeah. What's really wild is what led to suspicion in the investigation of Michael Skakel. It was Mark Furman. For those of you who don't know the name Mark Furman, Mark Furman was a Los Angeles Police Department detective who testified in the trial of O.J. Simpson and ended up blowing the whole thing because he said under oath that he had never used the N-word before, but then the defense team found recorded content of him using the word repeatedly and saying horrific racist things. Mark Furman took it upon himself to actually travel to Greenwich and do his own investigation. And in his book, he basically set, identified Michael Skakel as the killer. And he had a lot of reason to believe this. And I want to be clear, he didn't come to this conclusion on his own. He spoke to a lot of people that had done a lot of work on this case, but it was his final analysis, his notoriety, and his book that really brought this back to the forefront. Not long after Mark Furman's book was published, a grand jury was convened and they came back with an indictment against Michael Skakel on one charge of first-degree murder. Though he was 15 at the time of the crime, Skakel was charged as an adult. Why don't we talk about the evidence against Michael Skakel? When Michael was 18, he got a DUI and his father sent him to sort of like a reform school to avoid any kind of jail time called Elon School. And there were witnesses there that said that he confessed to this murder and said, quote, I'm going to get away with murder. I'm a Kennedy. He ran his mouth. There were multiple witnesses at Elon that ended up stating that he one way or the other confessed the defense led by Mickey Sherman, did what they could to discredit these witnesses. But that's kind of how this whole thing started. Elon is was known, it's been since closed, it was known to be a very unethical, abusive treatment facility. Michael was described at some points to be forced to wear a sign that says, ask me why I killed my friend Martha Moxley, while people threw stuff at him and tormented him. Michael escaped from the place multiple times. There was another instance where he was sort of tormenting a limo driver. I don't know if it was a limo, but his driver and even pulled a knife out and then made him stop at a bridge and said that he was going to jump because he had done something very bad. There were a lot of things that he said that made people suspicious. He, according to a criminal profile done by the Sutton Associates, which was actually hired 
by Rushton Skakel to try to exonerate his children, but they ended up zeroing in on Michael as a suspect. This was never released, but uh, Mark Furman got his hands on it and ran wild with it. The Sutton report was done by a criminal profiling group called the Academy Group, and they determined that based on the crime scene characteristics, Michael's behavior, and Michael's own words, that he was the likely perpetrator. There is no forensic evidence that matches Michael Skakel to the crime. The fact that no forensic evidence was really found to connect anyone to the crime is likely because of the improper investigation and the resources that were available as far as forensic collection back in 1975. So I want to talk about Michael Skakel's own words that have incriminated him. Michael Skakel wanted to write a book in his later adult years called Dead Man Talking. This was supposed to be a tell-all book exposing all of the Kennedy family secrets from a Kennedy cousin. Which, Damn. Which pissed the Kennedys off to no end, but his, his, his cousin RFK has obviously since forgiven him. There was a chapter, I mean, this book was never published, but... The prosecution was able to get their hands on the ghostwriter of Dead Man Talking's recordings of Michael Skakel kind of talking out each chapter. One of the chapters was about the Martha Moxley murder. The story that he told his ghostwriter was vastly different than the one that he had told investigators. In this story, he said that that night he had as he had told investigators, had gone to his cousin's house in northern Greenwich, which is known as backcountry Greenwich, which is about 20 minutes away. He had come back and was drunk, high, restless, and he decided that he was going to get a kiss from Martha Moxley. He goes out into the night. The Sutton Associates actually profiled Martha's killer as someone that's very comfortable being out in darkness. And Michael was a window peeper. So Michael ventures off into the darkness he tells his ghostwriter, he climbs a tree outside of Martha's window, yells, Martha, Martha, here's nothing in return that he just has to masturbate to completion into the tree, climbs down from the tree, he feels a presence and decides to yell and throw some sticks at this presence and then run home. So first of all, there was no tree that was actually climbable outside of any window of that home so he says that he climbs an unclimbable tree masturbates in response to nothing on a cold freezing night by himself feels a presence and then reacts to that presence by he says he starts throwing sticks and yelling now whoever was out killing martha that night think about the motions you would do if you're striking someone with a golf club and think about the motions you would do if you're throwing sticks Whoever was killing Martha was probably yelling. I think he was trying to cover his tracks in case someone saw him or in case semen was found on Martha Moxley's body with advanced forensic technology. I think that story dug his own grave. Why are you trying to account for so much stuff if you didn't do anything? He thought he was so damn smart. It made me cringe when you were like kind of going through it again. Even though I knew that that happened, I was just like, ugh. It's the most ridiculous story. He was just trying to account for things. It just, it did not make any sense. And it just made him look so guilty. Honestly, I think Michael Skakel's 
own words are the strongest evidence against him. Stronger than a criminal profile, obviously stronger than any forensic evidence against him. So he was tried as an adult and convicted 20 to life. And he was imprisoned at several different Connecticut jails. But I believe that he spent the majority of his time at McDougal Walker. That is correct, Melina. So in 2012, Skakel and his attorneys argued for a sentence reduction, claiming that he should have been tried in juvenile court, but he had lost that bid. He was denied parole at his first parole hearing in 2012. On November 21st, 2013, he was released on bond for $1.2 million cash. He had some conditions. He was to be monitored with a GPS device, have no contact with the Moxley family, and stay in Connecticut. However, he has not stayed in Connecticut. He got permission to move to Westchester County, New York. The book written by Robert F. Kennedy was released in 2016. In 2016, the Connecticut Supreme Court reinstated Michael's murder conviction with a 4-3 majority decision, writing that he had been convicted due to overwhelming evidence. In 2018, the prosecutors in Connecticut asked the Connecticut Supreme Court to revoke his bail and return him to prison to resume serving his sentence. However, the Connecticut Supreme Court vacated the conviction and ordered a new trial, and he is still out free on bail. Why the hell did this 15-year-old kid have so much rage? He had a lot of issues. His mother died from cancer at a young age. He had an absent alcoholic father who was abusive, according to the boy's physically abusive and harsh switching off from being an authoritarian to being completely absent very wealthy man it was basically just um a bunch of kids rowdy uncontrollable kids unsupervised unsupervised um just it was a mess it was a mess of a situation but he was known to be filled with rage talking about a motive he had a crush on martha Tommy how do you know that that was something that was known he had told his friends that and they had actually testified that all right testified as much during his trial he was infatuated with Martha he had a crush on Martha and he had this known sibling rivalry with Tommy Tommy also liked Martha Tommy was two years older Tommy was more popular Tommy ends up making out with Martha that night now it's unclear what time Martha actually died. There was some theories based on her stomach contents about what time she might have died. There were some theories about what time dogs started barking and going crazy in the neighborhood. But no one really knows for sure. The time range is in between 9.30 and 1.30 the next morning. Michael believes he is completely alibied because of that trip that he and a couple of the other brothers took to the country house in backcountry Greenwich 20 minutes away. The evidence does not rule out Martha being killed after he got back. The only thing that really suggests that she was killed around 9.30 were the dogs barking. I think that we're forgetting a very viable suspect here. Tommy! Why aren't we talking about Tommy? Tommy could have done it, but... Tommy's not the one putting himself at the scene. 
you know, Tommy, it, it's it's possible. I just don't think there's really any evidence against Tommy. I think Tommy knows something. Sure, that's possible. Has he talked? To who? Anybody at all since this? <laughs> well, not really. He originally told investigators, like I said before, that he and Martha just made out for a little while outside. They parted ways. He went upstairs to write a paper on Abraham Lincoln. The Sutton investigators confronted him with the fact, you know, times are changing. There's DNA evidence out there. You need to come clean. I'm pretty sure they even said Henry Lee, who is a very well-known forensic scientist. They said that he was getting on the case to sort of freak him out. And it was true. Henry Lee was coming on the case. Tommy started crying and said that he lied. He said that he actually spent another 20 minutes with Martha and they actually um, engaged in mutual masturbation to orgasm. And this was all outside. And then after that, they parted ways. And he lied about it because he didn't want to get in trouble or he didn't want to get her in trouble. I don't know. He didn't want to get himself involved in it more than anyone, more than anything else. I mean, I understand a 17-year-old not wanting to tell a bunch of adults that you were performing sexual acts. I, I understand that. I don't think that is like any kind of smoking gun here. But I do think it's interesting that he did lie. He was last seen with her, though. So? Where's Michael? There's no eyewitness of Michael with That's her. That's not true. There is the possibility that Michael Skakel was seen after the car going to the cousin's house left. So this car is leaving. Julie Skakel, Michael's older sister, and her friend, Andrea Shakespeare, were standing in the driveway as the car with the brothers and cousins drove away. Andrea remembers a dark figure dart past them and disappear into the bushes and recalls Julie Skakel yelling after that figure, Michael, come back here. Jeez. So one could surmise that Michael could see what was going on. Other people could see it. Martha's own friends were so embarrassed by the sight of it that they left. Michael sees it, is so pissed off that his stupid brother, who always gets whatever he wants, got the girl that he wanted. He is filled with rage, jumps out of the car, peeps on them in the night as he was known to do, little window peeper. RFK tried to make it cute in his book by saying that there was some older woman in the neighborhood that liked to get nude on purpose in front of the windows. Tell us how you really feel about RFK Jr. Chloe. <laughs> I really didn't have an opinion on this man until I read the book. And I just thought it was so ridiculous. He had something nasty to say about every single person in this case, except for Michael, who's really the only person that was doing despicable things. Going out, spying on people, being a voyeur and window peeping is disgusting. And trying to make it cute is unreal. As I was saying, I think Michael was peeping on Tommy and Martha, getting more and more pissed. She leaves. He grabs a golf club goes after her, taking all of his rage out on her. Many disagree about who the most likely perpetrator is in the murder of Martha Moxley, but most everyone can agree that the Greenwich police were ill-equipped to handle such a vast investigation. Their original theory was that the killer was a homeless man, a transient, that had wandered off the Interstate 95, which goes 
all the way from Florida to Maine, but runs through the state of Connecticut as well. So despite the fact that there were a couple of pieces of evidence that indicated that the killer was familiar with the area and perhaps a local, I think it was easier for the Greenwich Police Department to believe that the killer had to be an outsider, someone that wasn't one of their own, someone that wasn't a resident of the town of Greenwich. Bellhaven is a gated, exclusive community, but it is minutes off of I-95. That is true. It would not be a far walk. But first of all, I mean, why would someone end up in Bellhaven? Just traveling randomly on 95 if you're homeless? Are you hitchhiking and then you get off there, you decide to be dropped off in a random neighborhood and then come across a girl in a very short period of time? Well, I would say that the... Evidence left behind suggests that it wasn't a transient, and here's why. The person committed the crime in pitch darkness in this very exclusive neighborhood. You'd think that there would be some level of comfort there to do something as emboldened as bludgeoning a girl in eyesight of multiple houses with dogs ferociously barking at the same time. The weapon came from the Skakel home, so it was either inside of the Skakel house or it was retrieved lying on the yard, which is what the Skakels would actually like people to believe, was that it did not come from inside the house, but rather was lying out on the yard for anyone to grab. Um, But someone would still need to be comfortable enough to go close enough to someone's house and do that. And that kind of leads us to the Sutton report. Their profile heavily implicated Thomas and or... Michael in the killing. They stated that their profile was that the killer was between 14 and 18 years old, resided within walking distance of the neighbor's home, had regular interaction with the victim, experienced behavioral issues at school, and demonstrated strong sibling rivalry tendencies. The killer was also believed to be under the influence of alcohol and or drugs at the time of the murder. They believed the killer resorted to violence due to his immaturity and or his intoxicated state, which led him to cope with personal animosity towards the victim with violence. His choice of weapon, a golf club, was not one normally associated with violence, so its use indicated impulsivity, a lack of experience, and or immaturity on the part of the killer. The victim was also subjected to overkill, the use of far more violence than necessary to kill a person. For instance, in this case, 15 blows to a victim's head. This indicates anger and rage personally directed towards that victim. The disposal site on the edge of the victim's property would not have been selected by someone unfamiliar with the area given its considerable distance from the original attack site, which was the victim's driveway, and the darkness of the night. According to the Academy Group, the killer had to have been familiar with the location of the tree under which the victim was disposed. The profile continued with speculated offender characteristics, including that the killer had never killed before, was sexually inexperienced, and had sexual fantasies regarding the victim. They also said he was comfortable being out at night in the cover of darkness, they called it nocturnal tendencies, and committed voyeuristic acts in the immediate neighborhood. The associates determined that Michael had a crush on Martha and had a sibling rivalry with his brother Thomas. The two would fight over her. He was established to have been heavily intoxicated on the night of the crime and to have substance abuse issues. He admitted to window peeping in the neighborhood and had severe behavioral issues at home and at school. 
He lived directly across the street from Martha and was very familiar with the area. He did not have a criminal record. He was immature, impulsive, and inexperienced. Michael fit the profile. What this profile also really indicates is that this really wasn't a transient because even though they're really pointing towards Michael, even if they weren't pointing towards Michael, everything else points, one, towards being a local and familiar with the area, and two, being familiar with the victim herself. What was very compelling about this report was the guise of confidentiality that the Skakel family had. Rushton Skakel would have never publicly said these incriminating things about Michael. He truly put everything on his sleeve in hopes that it would help, which makes me think that he really didn't think his son was responsible. But he never thought this would get out. So what we're seeing, the tone that we're getting from these interviews released in the Sutton Report, which is all available online now, is the truth. It's not the veil. It's not the spin that the Skakels are trying to put out. And they never intended for this to get out. The investigators had signed confidentiality agreements, but there was an intern or some lower level employee that was never subjected to such confidentiality forms who felt compelled to give that report to Dominic Dunn, who then passed it along to Mark Furman, which led him to naming Michael Skakel as the killer. Melina and I are both from the psychological field. We're both very interested in criminal profiles as an investigative technique in an unsolved case. I actually took a graduate level criminal profiling class and a couple of things of note that I think are relevant to this report. I had learned that when analyzing a criminal profile, they really should not use age or sex without conclusive physical evidence. And there was no physical evidence that was recovered in Martha's case. Like I said, in the Academy Group report, the profiler speculated on both age, 14 to 18 years old, and sex of the killer. Professionals in the criminology field will tell you that age estimates are often subjective based on the profiler's personal experiences and opinions about what conduct can be expected from certain age groups, and thus they're unreliable. Sex estimates are also subjective, and sometimes personal biases can prevent an investigator from believing that women are capable of carrying out violent fantasies and committing violent crimes. The agency group's report also included relevant details about the choice of murder weapon, the killer's familiarity with the crime scene, the killer's familiarity with the victim, Martha, and the level of criminal skills, all of which should be included in a deductive profile if possible. However, the Sutton report made little mention of a really important detail, that Martha's pants and underwear were pulled down after she was killed. Many relevant hypotheses could have been made in light of this detail, including... The killer pulled down Martha's pants and underwear to humiliate her due to rage and personal animosity towards her. The killer pulled down Martha's pants and underwear with the intention to sexually assault her, which may or may not have been completed. The killer pulled down Martha's pants and underwear to expose her buttocks for the purpose of masturbating, which may or may not have been completed. Those are all possibilities that were not explored in this report, which is interesting. This detail could also potentially be the basis of their beliefs of the maturity level and sexual tendencies of the killer, but they did not extrapolate on that. Martha Moxley was murdered 44 years ago, and still her killer has not been brought to justice. 
In 2018, the Connecticut Supreme Court vacated Michael Skakel's conviction and ordered a new trial. This trial is on the list but has not yet been scheduled. The court ruled that Michael's counsel, Mickey Sherman, had rendered ineffective assistance when he failed to contact an alibi witness whose name had been provided by Skakel. And as a result, he was deprived of a fair trial. Here's my take on it. I think that Michael's presence at his cousin's house in backcountry Greenwich does not exonerate him from this murder. I think that this boyfriend of the cousin coming forward decades and decades later, he could have been thinking of a different night. His memory is certainly clouded. I don't think this is necessarily because Mickey Sherman was too lazy or distracted to track him down. I think it's possibly because it wasn't true and he wasn't saying this at the time and wouldn't have said it at the time that he was there. I don't think he was there, but even if he was, Martha's time of death, it could account for when Michael apparently would have returned from such a trip. Our thoughts are with Martha Moxley's family. They've had to live every day for 44 years without their loved one, and they also now have to live with the fact that there's no closure to their daughter's case, to their sister's case, and that Martha's killer has not been brought to justice. True Crime Twins is written and hosted by Chloe and Melina Cantor. It is produced by Crawlspace Media. Our music was composed by the captain, host of True Crime Garage. Special thanks to Tim Polari, Lance Reinsterna, and to all of our listeners. Keep in touch with True Crime Twins on social media. You can find us on Instagram at True Crime Twins Podcast, on Twitter at True Crime Twins, and you can also email us with any questions or comments at truecrimetwinspodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to rate and subscribe. <laughs>